history and politics absolutely talk to each other all the time. If we could study history, we could learn a lot about how we're dealing with each other right now. I would very much echo your call for much more conversation between the two subjects. To understand politics and really to understand any subject, you need to know the history. Hello and welcome to Dead Current, a podcast by History and Politics, where we look at current affairs through the lens of history. My name is Emily Glynn. And I'm Ellie Williams-Brown. Today we are looking at China, drawing broader comparisons with the West and answering questions regarding the COVID-19 pandemic through the lens of history. We are delighted to be joined by Dr. Chris Courtney, Assistant Professor in Modern Chinese History here at Durham University. Chris studies social and environmental history of modern China, previously focusing on environmental and anthropological disasters of both the 19th and 20th centuries. Having lived and conducted research in Wuhan, Chris has a particular interest in this area. Thank you for joining us. How are you today, Chris? I'm not bad, thanks. I'm all right. Could you tell us a little bit about your work and how it relates to today's podcast? Sure, yeah. So, um, uh, as you just mentioned in your intro, I, I lived in Wuhan for a number of years. I guess it's, it's kind of over five years in total over the last couple of decades. Um, so I've got a strong kind of connection to, to the city and, uh, and the people and I'm kind of a big advocate of the city's history and the kind of region's history more general, generally. And a lot of my research has been on kind of the, the topic of disasters, the topic of floods in particular. Well, I've written on fires as well. So um, kind of I spent a long time thinking about issues of disaster causality, issues of social response to disasters and these types of things which don't necessarily translate perfectly into the, the kind of the way of thinking about disease and pandemics and these types of things but certainly have a lot of parallels and also a lot of the disasters that I talk about has kind of a strong disease component so I've spent quite a lot of time thinking about various issues of historical epidemiology. Thank you for that. Um, if we could get into perhaps some questions about uh, Western perceptions of China. Um, I was recently reading um, a book by Margaret Macmillan called The Uses and Abuses of History, and she mm -hmm. mentions the use of history in China and um, how author authoritarian regimes and the Communist Party in China promote a single version of history. Could it be observed that China does have a distinct use of history and politics, similar to uh, Macmillan pointing out here, um, or is it comparable uh, in any other ways to any other countries too? Yeah, I mean... To a certain extent, it, it depends what you mean by distinct. Uh, I think I can see there are certainly kind of extreme forms of the way that history is used in China that you wouldn't necessarily see in other countries. But I can also see a lot of comparisons with the ways that histories are, history is used and abused in China to the way it's used in, for example, the UK or the USA. Um, my answer to your question also depends to a certain extent in what you mean when you talk about China. So, of course, there is no singular, unitary, homogenous actor that we can call China today. Uh, China is a heterogeneous collection of different peoples, communities, uh, and it's a fifth of the world's population. So, of course, there is not one China. And in fact, when you use the term China, so how, do, how, how is uh, kind of history used in China you are, to a certain extent, um, probably alluding, I guess, to the Chinese government or to the Chinese Communist Party and the kind of regime. But really, 
positing China as a singular actor is what they do when they try to use history in politics. Um, so they try to deny all the time the kind of heterogeneity of, of Chinese history, the different peoples, the different ethnicities that go up to making the thing that we call to China today in order to convince us that there is this singular homogenous narrative of history. They, they deny what, what Ralph Litzinger, the, the anthropologist, would describe the, as the other Chinas. So I can give you a couple of examples of the way this, this works in practice. One perhaps thinking about more ancient history and one thinking about the more modern history. So one of the ways that uh, history is used repeatedly in China today is this this claim about the supposed superlative longevity of Chinese culture. So China is said to have this 5,000 years of continuous history. Sometimes the number of thousands vary. The 5,000 years is kind of the longest claim that's ever made, uh, making the region the area that has the kind of longest cultural, uh, kind of continuous cultural tradition on earth. Now there's a degree of truth in this. There are certain aspects of ancient kind of ways of life that existed thousands of years ago that are still there in contemporary China. For example, the written language today has kind of links to written languages that were used thousands of years ago. Where this claim about this, this continuous culture becomes more problematic is when it gets conflated with ideas about territory and worse still when it becomes kind of involved with ideas about uh, race and ethnicity and and particularly becomes conflated with ideas of the Han majority and their culture, which it often is today. It's what Mao Zedong would famously have called Han, Han chauvinism. And what this is, is a, essentially is a denial of all of the alternative histories that have existed within the polity that we know today as China, the kind of territory we know today as China. So let's take the most egregious example of this in, in contemporary China, which is what's happening in Xinjiang with the, the Uyghur people, whose history is literally being erased, kind of effaced from, from the map of China. Their cemeteries are being bulldozed, their mosques are being demolished, their language is being prohibited, their customs are being attacked. Now this is a project of denying people their own history, uh, which many people would actually say is a form of cultural genocide. But it's also a it's also a kind of project of trying to impose a dominant narrative of history, this kind of 5,000 years of Chinese history model onto this particular people in order to get their compliance. And in many ways, I think this latter part, this kind of imposing of a, of a kind of unitary history is more disturbing because it is, I mean, obviously it's terrible that they're destroying Uyghur culture, but in order to try and kind of incorporate the Uyghurs into this kind of grand history. They've involved all these practices like forcing people to marry Han Chinese people, kind of encouraging people to marry Han Chinese people. And recently there's been these kind of accounts of sterilization of Uyghur women so that they can't produce their own children. So it seems kind of um, the ultimate aim of this is to ensure that uh, there's nobody left really who isn't in some way tied to, through kinship or through blood, to this kind of grand historical project, which is uh, contemporary China. So that's um, an excuse of the kind, that's a, and sorry, that's an example of the kind of um, use of ancient history in China. 
So, but modern history is also used in China, probably most obviously the kind of use of the revolutionary history of, of China uh, and the way it's kind of continually reiterated in society today. So just to think of one example of this, there's this famous Maoist exemplar soldier called Lei Feng, who was a kind of soldier who died in the 1960s. And he's sort of ver venerated as kind of somebody who embodies the ideals of the Maoist state, who sacrificed himself uh, to help other people all the, all the time. So he's become a kind of symbol of the revolutionary past and children have to celebrate Lei Feng Day in school and they're encouraged to do all these good deeds uh, to emulate Lei Feng. But interestingly, at the same time, this revolutionary history is also used by certain people to criticize the Communist Party. So when you're talking about how is history used in China, there are people who would use Communist Party history to criticize the Communist Party. So when I've been doing my own research in Hubei, for example, lots of people would talk about the, the Mao era or, or kind of the collective era more generally to, 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 to criticize Hu Jintao or later Xi Jinping for the perceived um, problems there are in contemporary China. So it's possible, for example, to have a picture of Mao Zedong on your wall in part as a kind of critique of the contemporary regime. Lots of people in particular in, in Wuhan, the city I, I do most of my research, really didn't like Deng Xiaoping. So keeping up a picture of Mao Zedong is also an implicit crit criticism of a certain strain of the Communist Party since the 1980s. Even when you are kind of promoting a seemingly compliant narrative of party history, there exists within that the possibility of, subver of subverting that history. Discussing how people should engage with this singular narrative of history, how do you think historians should engage with this singular version of histories and prevent themselves from repeating or creating similar narratives? It very much depends on who you mean by historians, because me as a historian employed, like writing and researching Chinese history in a university outside China, I'm in a position of relative privilege because many of my colleagues and my friends who research and, and kind of teach history in China are not in necessarily a position to question explicitly the, um, the narrative that is presented, this kind of singular history. Historians has often been to find ways to question the dominant narrative and subvert the ideas of, that are presented by the Communist Party. So, for example, great effort has been made by historians of the kind of Maoist era to unearth the abuses of human rights and, and kind of the, the mass famine, the kind of cultural revolution, these types of things that happened during that period and expose the crimes of, of this period. Of course, this is something you can only do outside China really effectively nowadays, particularly um, in uh, the last couple of days, for example, a guy called Xu Zhangrun who had written about the cultural revolution and COVID crisis and worked in Beijing. He has been arrested, so you can't effectively do this. It's something that has to be done from the outside. Another way that historians try to subvert this narrative is subverting this idea of this kind of continuous history and the idea that there is this con continuity between the People's Republic and the preceding empires. And so I guess one of the most famous attempts to do this is through what's known as New Qing history, in which people try to essentially say that actually the Qing Empire wasn't the same political entity as 
the kind of contemporary People's Republic of China and that it was ruled in a very different way. It was ruled by a dominant Manchu um, dynasty rather than by the Han Chinese. And it was in many ways an imperial form in, its, in it rather than kind of the contemporary state of the PRC. This is also very controversial in China and has been criticised by, by Chinese historians. Uh, on the topic of this uh, loud, shouty communist voice, um, getting back towards the nitty gritty perhaps of um, the Communist Party and their singular uh, dominant history. Um, so you say that they do seek to establish this dominant narrative of history, but in practical terms, how do they do this? Firstly, through kind of controlling local academics, they, they control what's published. I mean, publishing houses, there's a degree of censorship. Um, they also play a role in academia in terms of appointments. So, uh, for example, being a member of the Communist Party might help your career. Increasingly, the Communist Party in, in recent years in particular have started to kind of promote these Marxism study schools in universities in which you're supposed to draw your PhD students from them. People who are members of this study school will almost certainly be members of the party. That's not to be mistaken for these kind of Marxist study organizations, which are actually being clamped down upon because they want people to study orthodox Marxism according to the party. They don't want people to study actual Marxism. So there's kind of various ways they control academia in China. Uh, then there's the way they control access to historical materials. And they do this through denying people entry to archives. Of course, this applies both to academics in China and outside China. And then they control academic access from outside out academics coming into China. They can deny your visa to come to China. That's happened to quite a lot of people, particularly those who are kind of talking about Xinjiang, places like that, they often will have their visas denied. Well, I'd say probably the largest way that they kind of control the practice of history is through, of course, controlling education. And uh, there's nothing unique there. Our, our government in this country also can control our knowledge of history through controlling the national curriculum. So there's a number of kind of dominant narratives that they will teach you through this national curriculum, but particularly in the modern in the modern era, kind of the school children are continually asked to uh, sorry, continually taught about this century of humiliation. So this occurs between the kind of late 1830s when Britain started the Opium War to, to 1949 when China is quote unquote liberated by the Communist Party. And so this is narrated as this continual series of humiliations within Chinese history. However, this flattening of history into this endless stream of just humiliation after humiliation, finally to be delivered by the Communist Party, is yet another way of denying the kind of variation and heterogeneity of the past in order to make it serve a singular political message. We're talking quite a lot about um, the political uses of history, and that's really interesting to me, especially if we look at, at the British uh, political rhetoric for a minute surrounding uh, COVID-19. Politicians are regularly resorting to the past, especially World War II, as a source of morale and strength with comparisons to Dunkirk. Um, could you say that China does a similar thing or do they have a tendency to look forward and consider their improvements rather than looking backwards? So they, they certainly do both. I would say probably the, um, the capacity to look forward uh, and to link the future to 
kind of a, a, a meta narrative of history coming from the past is more is more dominant in China. But this, they, they certainly also very much like Britain use the past, have used the past as a means of thinking about kind of how to cope with the current pandemic crisis. Again, I would say they're kind of continually reiterating this kind of revolutionary history. Uh, and it's used to inculcate certain values of self-sacrifice for the people and the nation. And this is, of course, this echoes what you're talking about in terms of Dunkirk and the Blitz spirit and all these kind of things used to kind of create this sort of civic cultural response to a crisis. So when we look at particularly for like in Wuhan, the way that the crisis was dealt with there, doctors and nurses were being represented in many ways in that the kind of evoked the imagery of revolutionary heroes or soldiers from the past. And this, this wasn't necessarily an explicit reference, as I, I mentioned, it's not an exact moment in history, it's, it's more a general kind of ev evocation of the kind of mythologized era of the past, this, this, this time when people cared more about their fellow uh, Chinese people. So this, appe this appeals to a very kind of emotive, if not explicitly articulated past, uh, which played the way in the way, and it played, this played a role in the way that the Communist Party diffused criticisms as well as kind of promoting a kind of positive narrative of itself. At the outset of the disaster, there was this whistleblower called Yuan Liang. He was one of a number of whistleblowers who kind of drew attention to the coronavirus crisis. And then he famously later died of coronavirus. And when he did, there was this outpouring of kind of anger in China, quite, quite unusually kind of vocal outburst from people being incredibly angry about what had been done to this particular person. Uh, and this is, I would say, probably the moment for the Communist Party when the coronavirus pandemic was at its most dangerous. So, but what they ultimately did is they, they didn't suppress the history, they didn't suppress the knowledge of Li Wanlian. Instead, they co-opted him. So they did this by honoring him as a national martyr. So Li Wanlian then, rather than being a kind of a, a figurehead of dissent against the Communist Party, which he briefly became, instead becomes a hero who had sacrificed himself for the country. So if you look at the kind of imperial era in China, what, what the state would often do is if there was a subversive god or a subversive figure being posthumously worshipped in a locality that, that threatened the hegemony of the state in a particular area, rather than suppressing the knowledge of this person, they would instead co-opt him, it usually was a him, sometimes a her, into the uh, pantheon of the state. So it meant that when they were worshipping this figure, they're also worshipping the kind of pantheon of the state. So that's kind of one of the ways in which they, they've kind of used a kind of historical function of uh, uh, getting rid of any kind of dissent in their kind of response to the coronavirus crisis. I would also say that uh, on the one hand, we've got this kind of mythic history that's being used to kind of promote this positive uh, response to coronavirus, this kind of this ethos of uh, dedicating yourself to the people, this this kind of uh, gratitude for doctors and this kind of thing. But at the same time, um, they also kind of instrumentally used the history of kind of negative ideas about foreign criticism. Again, this isn't necessarily, this wasn't necessarily done explicitly. It's more kind of mood mu music in the background. So I already mentioned they have this kind of, this, this discourse of the century of 
humiliation, which is one of kind of the major pillars of secondary school education in China. So you've got people predisposed to thinking that foreigners necessarily have historically humiliated China. So when there's this kind of coronavirus crisis, and they begin to see huge amounts of foreign criticism of the way that China has dealt with the crisis, this then becomes interpreted as yet another humiliation of China. So you see what I mean? It's not an explicit use of a particular event. It's an it's a, it's a exploitation of a kind of meta-narrative of the state. And in its most extreme forms, this, takes, this, takes the, this took the form at the kind of height of the, the pandemic in China of people making all these kind of conspiracy theories that coronavirus was actually introduced by the Americans to China during the Wuhan military games. They said that the, the Americans, some people say they even deliberately brought coronavirus to try and undermine the Chinese people. And coming back to what I was saying about you are asking about this kind of top down, bottom, this kind of top down imposition of history. This is precisely a case in which the Communist Party didn't necessarily create that narrative. That narrative was kind of created from below. The Communist Party didn't suppress that narrative. They could have just instantly controlled social media and prevented people from saying that, but they allowed it to flourish. But this is a narrative that kind of percolated up from below, a kind of conspiracy theory. Yeah. On the very current topic of COVID, your specialism in Wuhan provides us obviously the great opportunity to explore this further. So kind of shifting our focus again to kind of how history is used at a time of crisis, would you say that Xi Jinping's response to COVID-19 is being compared internally to Mao's response to the famine resulted from the Great Leap Forward, perhaps in a way that Boris Johnson is trying to link himself to Churchill? I would say certainly Xi Jinping does play upon on his particular kind of, uh, he tries to promote a resemblance between himself and Mao in the same way that, that, that Johnson tries to promote a kind of resemblance between himself and Winston Churchill. So it's this, it's this populist, strongman leadership quality uh, that, that Xi Jinping tries to promote. He also tries to promote a certain red idealism uh, and, and again, the kind of certain elements of the combative foreign uh, policy and these types of things. These are, the kind of, these are the kind of attributes of Mao that Xi Jinping tries to emulate. Do you think, even though Xi Jinping isn't comparing himself to Mao, that there are similar comparisons that can be drawn between the pandemic and events in Chinese history in a way that in Britain it's being compared to the Spanish influenza or even the Black Death? And I would, I'm kind of answer it in, I'm afraid, a slightly oblique fashion by turning on its head somewhat, by saying I'm not really very convinced about the comparisons that are made in this country between COVID-19 and the Black Death and Spanish flu. So, but what I would say is what's interesting is not necessarily finding an event from Chinese history to compare to COVID-19, but actually looking at what happened in the world during the Spanish flu and looking at that as a comparison in which we can bring China into the kind of comparison, we can bring Asia into the comparison. So I'd say that what we do in this country is we, we don't actually make good comparisons between COVID-19 and the Spanish flu. We make comparisons between what we understand as the Spanish flu. And that is a mythic history of the, of the Spanish flu based upon an Euro-American centric interpretation of what happened during those events. So when, when we think about the Spanish flu, the images that are evoked are Tommies returning from the First World War. The images are um, 
industrial cities in America laid waste by this particular disease. But the, the highest proportion of people who died in the Spanish flu were Indian. This happened in the British imperial rule. The, the networks of transmission that were created, partly created by the First World War, were imperial. There's a kind of an imperial history to the Spanish flu that we never think about. Um, so where is this in our narrative of the Spanish flu? Uh, and some, so thinking particularly about the kind of Chinese uh, perspective on this, it's also very interesting. One of the most interesting things about the kind of uh, Spanish flu is that China was relatively unaffected, just as in real terms nowadays, China is relatively under affected by COVID-19. In comparison to mortality statistics you find in, in, in Europe, they're kind of much lower uh, in China, outside Hubei in particular. Um, so the, this part of our knowledge of the Spanish flu is almost entirely absent, as is the fact that the ubiquitous face masks that are worn, that are sometimes called Spanish flu face masks, weren't Spanish flu face masks. They were first used in a public health context by Wu Liandu during the pneumonic plague outbreak years before, about, about a decade before the Spanish flu. So invented by a Malayan Chinese epidemiologist who nobody has heard of. So really, if we're looking for historical comparisons with COVID-19, the, the flu is probably quite a good one in that it's one in which the, the history, the suffering and the agency of Asian people has almost entirely been arrayed within our own public memory of this event. And it's been ignored by people in, in Europe and America who make the story of a global pandemic a provincial story about themselves. Um, perhaps if we manage to kind of break out of this mentality uh, of thinking about a pandemic as a local history, then we and we paid closer attention to kind of the, what a pandemic actually is, then we would have been a little bit better prepared for something that originated in Asia and then came over here and we, we sat and didn't do very much about during the initial waves. I find your response really interesting because I'm actually working on a project at the moment about how um, British politics continues to mythologise the past of World War II and especially how you know they depict that Britain stood alone when actually they had an army filled with people from the empire and things like that. So actually on that topic I'd quite like to ask you a more theoretical question. Do you think it's possible to use history without it distorting our presence? Uh, it, it depends very much what you're talking about in terms of history. I mean I mean, every historical narrative has already been kind of, to a certain extent, abstracted through the prisms from which we look at it through the past. So we never, I, I'm not a believer in the capacity of human beings to objectively represent the past. So everything will be, I mean, distorted is a very loaded pejorative term. Everything will be interpreted. Everything will be framed. So I don't think it's ever possible to have a kind of clear objective view of the past. And I don't think that many professional historians do. We are all aware that we're involved in a process of narrating the past, reinterpreting. reinterpreting. So um, there's a historian, Stephen Pinn, who's written a very interesting book about how you write history, in which he says that we only really have two rules about when we're writing history. The first rule is that you can't include anything that you know didn't happen, right? The second thing is that you can't include anything that would materially, you can't exclude anything that would materially transform your representation of the past. 
just because you want to create a particular narrative. So those are two different ways of lying. You can't positively lie, lie by including false facts. You can't lie by excluding inconvenient truths. Um, other than that, the entire process of creating history is a narrative process. And anybody who tries to convince you otherwise would be a liar. So the pandemic has revealed disparities between China and British response. Um, while Britain has perhaps struggled to implement effective strategies, China's demonstrated a more effective technology-based track and trace system. Does this perhaps challenge the traditional and historical presentations of China as backwards and in inverted commas? Um, I don't want to load my, my words too heavily. And Britain as a modern political entity. Um, firstly, we need to deal with this issue of the relative uh, efficiency with which the Chinese government dealt with COVID-19. That's one part. And secondly, we need to talk about the relative representation of Britain and China, which is what you alluded to in this kind of idea of modernity and backwardness. So I'll take those one at a time. So let's consider this idea of relative uh, uh, efficiency. We have to begin with a series of caveats about this. The first is that when we're making comparisons between Britain and China, we are not looking at comparable information regimes. It's unquestionable that the Chinese government have attempted to hide certain aspects of their response to the coronavirus outbreak. I personally believe these are more to do with the, the human rights abuses that were involved in the lockdown rather than large scale lying about the kind of quantitative effects of the, the death toll and these types of things. Uh, but actually we will never know because, I mean, one of the frustrations of studying Chinese history is that you would say, well, actually, we're never going to find out about that. There's no effective way we can. Now, of course, the British government has also massaged statistics uh, and tried to, like, deny their blame. For example, just today, you have Boris Johnson trying to shift culpability onto care homes. But really, in terms of the scale and in terms of the effectiveness of kind of obfuscating their responsibility. The Chinese government are very much better than the British government, uh, which is all just a long-winded way of saying we can't, when we're making these comparisons, we have to be very careful because we don't know what's the truth, et cetera, et cetera. Having said that, however, it does seem that the Chinese government did respond very much more effectively than, they, than the British government. In fact, they managed to contain almost all of the death in COVID-19 to a Western portion of Hubei province, one province. Um, provinces in China are roughly equivalent to the size of some European, smaller European nations. So really they contained it in one area. And the death toll outside that area, the highest provincial death toll outside Hubei is 22. There are several provinces in China that have zero fatalities. So it's really quite, impressive if we can believe the statistics uh the the extent to which they've controlled this of course they now have a second wave in beijing uh we don't know what's going to happen with this in fact some people have been suggesting that in fact this second wave in in beijing is this new mutant strain that is much more virulent the strain that hit europe and america is actually much more much higher morbidity rate than um than than the, the strain that hit china so we have to wait and see what's happening in Beijing. And I think to answer this question, we need to think about the specificities of both of our political and technological systems. Firstly, the relative success of China is actually the story 
of the abject failure of the UK government. So the fact that they look relatively good is really just a measure of the incompetence of our own government. Anyway, in comparison to this, the Chinese government doesn't really have to have done very much to look impressive. However, they have achieved something that is relatively effective. And they began in kind of local areas. And this is kind of instructive when we're thinking about comparisons between these track and trace systems. They began in China in local areas in February. We just kind of abandoned the trial in the Isle of Wight just now. That They had a kind of an effective track and trace system in place in February. It was a, initially developed locally in Hangzhou, in kind of an area of China. And it kind of in different localities adopted their own systems. This is known as the health code system. So what happens is that you then have to scan your QR code to go onto a bus or into a kind of a public place. Um, and that's how you can kind of, that, that's how they kind of track and trace cases. The clever thing about this is, say I'm on the bus, I have a green QR code, you're on a bus sat next to me, we don't know each other, you also have a green code. If your code the next day changes to amber, so does my code. And we both have to quarantine for 14 days. So it's a, it's a way of measuring depersonalized networks of interaction within an urban setting. And that's why it's working relatively well. And it's much better than relying on people uh, just telling you who they've come in contact with. Okay. So there's, as I said, there's a few reasons this system works better in China than it does in, in the UK. Um, Partly it relates to the part of your question where you're thinking about is China, do we need to rethink about China being relatively backwards? So it works better in China because in many ways, technologically, China had leapt over Britain in the last few years. Um, the use of mobile phone telephones, the use of QR codes, now increasingly facial recognition technology is now far ahead of the UK. You just, if you want to kind of a little glimpse of this, just go into a Chinese supermarket in the UK and see the way that people pay using their phones, people, the way that people are kind of using apps, people are using technology to interact with each other, which I mean, is happening to a certain extent in the UK, but much, much less than it is happening in China. So as well as the kind of technological capacity, this is institutional apparatus that exists in China that mean it is much, much easier for them to track and control their population movement. I mean, at the same time, over the last couple of decades that China has kind of uh, subverted our view of it as being technologically incompetent, the, so too this idea that China is somehow politically backwards has also been subverted. I think anybody who's been witnessing politics over the last decade shouldn't really be believing this anymore. Clearly, China has reverted to a form of authoritarianism that we thought it consigned to the past, just as so has Russia, so has the Philippines, so has India. And of course, we have our own iteration in the UK with Brexit and the USA with Trump. I'm sorry. So continuing on the idea of perceptions of China, British people and the West generally seem to be repeating misperceptions, especially in regards to Chinese food. So in the West, the pandemic was immediately attributed to supposed wild animal trading and a Chinese diet of unusual food, such as bats. Given the rise of Chinese food as a staple takeout for many British households, why do you think that the oriental image of China as a place which eats so-called exotic food that's not culturally edible in the West continues to persist? Well, I have to begin with my, my caveat. So there is a wild food trade in China. Uh, it is it, ecologically destructive and it has caused 
uh, epidemics and pandemics in the past, most recently SARS. In terms of the actual origin, this kind of wild food trade in this region of China is relatively small. So Wuhan doesn't have a particularly big trade in these types of commodities. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist, and I, I'm not a denialist. I, I, I think this particular this particular seafood market that um, that was shut down apparently was selling these things. Not bats. Nobody's ever proved they were selling bats. Not pangolin. That that wasn't on any of the the menus. Uh, pangolin, as far as I know, is eaten a little bit, but it's more used in medicine than it is in food. This one kind of fairly exceptional market in Wuhan, more common in other regions of China, exceptional in Wuhan became perceived as the reality of the way that something called a wet market existed in all Chinese cities and existed throughout Wuhan. Wet, these wet markets in Chinese are just food markets. That's how it translates. People shop in food markets. They, they don't typically contain kind of uh, crazy forms of wild food. They have some food you wouldn't get here, like frogs and stuff like that. Um, you get in, in kind of live fish and things like that. So they used to involve kind of slaughtering live chickens, things you wouldn't see in a market here, but they're not these kind of fanciful spaces where you can eat all these kind of everything under the sun that they are imagined to be. So what then happens? So this is the kind of first part. There is a reality of the trade. It has been mass distorted by the kind of perception. And it is also distorted by this, this terminology wet market, which has nothing to do with China, it was Singaporean English way to describe a, a kind of type of market that was not a supermarket where they don't use cold chain processing in the 1970s. And people being obsessed with and coming up with all this racist stuff about people eating bats and stuff like that, it doesn't matter if there's a degree of truth in the fact that the wild food trade did start this particular disease, it doesn't stop their pathological racism being a, a pathology, if you see what I mean. So Britain responded to this crisis in this particular way because just in the same way that uh, I, I was saying Chinese people habitually think about themselves as being humiliated by foreigners because of an all-pervading sense that is created through the way that history is taught in school and these types of things. In this country, we reacted that way because we have an all-pervading sense of this racist view of East Asia. So it's our automatic reaction. We're kind of programmed by a process of enculturation to think about China in this particular way. We're programmed by, for example, every time the BBC has a documentary about China, they'll send somebody to a street where they're eating weird things like bugs and stuff like that. Even though people very rarely eat that kind of stuff in China. It's kind of a low level, continual idea that China is this kind of place where people eat weird stuff that we, Continually drip fed. So then, when something like, like this happens, you have this kind of outburst like this. It's it's unsurprising. We've been conditioned to thinking this way. Um, returning to the main theme um, for our podcast, as somewhat of a conclusion and a general question: Do you think a history in politics should be promoted, or is it more than it's worth? Some of the attributes of historians would be beneficial to influencing politicians, not necessarily our uh, encyclopedic knowledge of the past, but our capacity to think about processes happening over long periods of time, uh, and our capacity to, to think about things 
over a very long period of time. Uh, so, and, and I mean, personal time. So the, the fact that it takes us five years to think about something that happened a long time ago, and then we write a book. I think slowly percolating through ideas is something that is missing from our politics today. Thank you very much, Chris. And I hope you've enjoyed this today as much as we have. And thank you to everyone listening at home. Don't forget to look out for our next podcast, as well as other events, articles and videos on our website and Facebook. And please like our page for more content on history and politics. Thank you for listening.